another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This podcast exists to promote those who are honing their craft as educators. Life is an apprenticeship, and we want to support a rising guild of educators across all disciplines and backgrounds who want to center their praxis and their pedagogy on what really matters. Welcome to episode 42. This episode, we have Christy Boyce, who is the virtual health learning consultant from the Fraser Health Authority. Sally and I sit down with her and chat quite a bit about her experience in the Royal Roads University Malat program, how it's influenced her thinking, her own education, and how she helps facilitate learning opportunities for others. Grab a coffee, tea, grab a pen, some paper. That's right. Analog. Take some notes. You're going to love this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the other side. Take care. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode 42, Sally. 42. I know we're eight. We're eight away from the big five. Oh, my goodness. I'm excited. I'm also excited, Sally, because we have Christy Boyce here today. How are you doing, Sally? I'm doing great. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty excited. This is my first time that I've met Christy Boyce, but mm-hmm. I've heard much about her. And um, I think it's going to be a really interesting session because unlike many of our other guests, Christy doesn't come to us from... You know, no, definitely not from trades, nor directly from the educational sector. So this is pretty exciting. I know. I've been looking to forward early. to this ever since she said yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this. And um, yeah, Chad's on assignment, so he won't be able to join us this morning. But um, he uh, he sends his well wishes and hellos. And uh, I'm sure his name will come up in the episode at least once or twice, along with Vygotsky. I'm sure we'll fit that guy in somewhere. <laughs> Actually, that says it all, doesn't it? Chad, that guy was alive. He could be our co-host. We mentioned him so many times. Yeah, good idea. uh, Yeah, yeah. that'd be be fun. That'd be fun. The same that we have Chad and Lev Vygotsky on the same platform here. You know, we've we've really those two. Exactly. I'm sure he's laughing now as he's as he's running, listening to us. Good morning, Christy. How are you? I'm really good. Yeah, up early to uh, join you so that's it's good it's a good thing it's it's interesting to be up this early it's dark which is changing but uh i'm really good yeah energized today so excited to be here (laughs) good good we're excited to have you so christy why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, we'll move on from there sure yeah So I'll start with my educational background, um, my career background. So I am a respiratory therapist by trade um, and pre-COVID, you probably had no idea what those folks did, but now um, with COVID highlighting uh, our job role, um, you probably have a good idea of what that entails. A lot of uh, critical care, um, taking care of patients who struggle to breathe, need resuscitation, have to be placed on ventilators um, amongst other amazing things. Um, so it's a cardiopulmonary specialty. And I trained up at um, Thompson Rivers University, which at the time was University College of the Caribou. So um, I graduated in 01, quite a while ago, and worked for 
quite a number of years, about seven years at BC Children's Hospital, specializing in neonatal intensive care. So with all the little tiny babies in the nursery who needed to be placed on ventilators, the preemies, and also in the pediatric intensive care unit with um, children aged, you know, newborn all the way up to 17. Um, I did some time as an anesthesiology assistant in the OR at Children's, and then I migrated over to the adult world um, just more for work-life balance, so I wasn't driving so far downtown um, to a smaller hospital out in the community in Fraser Health. And um, just hung out there and worked as an RT and had some kids. (laughs) And um, shifted a little bit eventually into a, a role as a simulation facilitator. And I I taught uh, the infant resuscitation program. So that's called uh, NRP, neonatal resuscitation program. It's a Canada-wide program. So I taught nurses, doctors, RTs, and uh, midwives how to resuscitate infants at delivery. And I also picked up, um, because I loved teaching simulation, um, a a role part-time as um, an advanced cardiac life support instructor. So that was, you know, teaching what, what happens at a code blue right? What to do to resuscitate people and um, love that so much that um, I drifted away from acute care and, and community care and felt like, oh, I really love the education side of my role. So um, I'm going to look around for master's programs and graduate studies programs and see what's out there. So that's how I fell upon the Mallet program. Wow. That's a, it's a interesting that you're a respiratory therapist because I do know what they do. Uh, my son played soccer uh, with a young man who was from Kamloops who had both mom and dad as a respiratory therapist in Kamloops Hospital. Oh, now, interesting. For the life of me, I can't remember their names because I'm sure it's a small community and I'm sure being from that area, you would probably know them. Might know them, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm remiss for their names. So It wasn't Lemfers, was it? I'm sorry. Lemfers, Mike oh, Lemfers. Yeah, maybe this Dark is a number of years glasses. ago. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He has glasses. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Sandy and Mike, amazing. Yeah, that's it. That's yep. it. Sandy and Mike. He was Sally, one of my Look at that, right? It's fantastic. A small I yeah. know. Fantastic <laughs> instructor. He has the program now. Oh, does he? Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, okay. incredible teacher. Okay. Yeah, they're a great family. I love, I love hanging yeah. out with them. Yeah, I knew what a respiratory therapist was. And my wife's a nurse too. Well, was, she hasn't been practicing for a while, but um, yeah, cool. So what, what, what made you drift? Like, I know it seems like it was just a natural step from one to another and, and all, but what, what was it for you that made it click when you went, okay, this is, this is what I really want to do. Like you mentioned, I kind of really liked the educational aspect of what I'm doing, but what was it specifically that made you go, Hmm, I'm, I'm yeah. going to pursue this. So I think it wasn't so much a drift into education as uh, a lifelong uh, pull. So immediately upon graduation at BC Children's Hospital, you graduate one day, you become a working therapist the next day, and you are immediately a preceptor. You're given a student. You were a student yesterday. Congrats. Today you have a student with you. Sounds like a friendship. (laughs) Yeah, it does sound like apprenticeship. No wonder they include you in the vocational world. (laughs) It's like, oh, you're a journey person. Yeah, here's three apprentices. Now you know what to do. Yeah, Yeah. and I, I just loved it. I loved it. Um, I loved 
the questions. I loved the exploration of why did we do things. And so it didn't matter where you put me in my career, what job I took. I leaned into education wherever I went. And so maybe I just stopped ignoring it, (laughs) so to speak. And, you know, like I was always kind of like, you know, Oh, I'll, I'll teach that group of nurses. Yeah, no problem. I'll make myself available. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give them orientation on the new ventilator. No problem. So I loved it. I loved it at the bedside. If there was a new nurse coming into ICU, I would volunteer to walk through. We sometimes even had nurses from outside the country and respiratory therapists don't exist in other, in many other countries, right? So like a, a nurse from the UK came in and she said, honestly, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> and I said, well, give me a few hours and I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through what I do and then you'll see the value. And she said the next day, she said, oh my gosh, you're like a doctor and a nurse and an anesthesiologist rolled into one. It's so, it's so great to have you here and you're here, like you're here, here next to me, walking the day with me, taking care of this patient. So I just, I leaned into it all everywhere I went. And what shifted me maybe into graduate studies is I had kind of reached a point in my career where I was a clinical practice lead, which is kind of like the middle, middle management healthcare role for Narti. And um, I had a, let's say this gently, a traumatic experience with a manager that um, resulted in, and I'm not an anxious or a nervous person, I never was, um, a total breakdown and a six-month stress leave just because of the relationships that we had together. But that led to some incredible counseling and rehabilitation of my brain and my mind and my soul that, that made me feel like I could step away from what I thought my career path was supposed to be into an unknown space, despite the fear of that and the loss that I felt for it. And when I did that, I moved into, I took like, you know, a casual job and kind of, you know, picked away at ICU a little bit. And I thought, oh, you know, I'd really like to try community work and take care of patients in their homes and see what they're living like and walk through their days with them and set goals with them and see how they're living. And so I did that for um, a year and a half and then thought, I love this, but I know that there's more that I, I, I can do and more that I can learn and more that I can teach, right? That whole new aspect within, within the last decade in healthcare of shifting from reactive care to fix you once you're broken to teaching you how to care for yourself and prevent you from being ill and keeping you safe in your home and reaching out instead of having you bounce in and we fix you and send you back out again and hope you don't bounce back. So to me, I could see that the shift in healthcare to more prevention and health promotion was going to require an incredible ability to not necessarily teach patients, but coach and guide. And that was a completely different skill set. And that connected to my love of education. And so I think that's what really poked at me. And I'd heard of the Mallet program, the Master of Arts in um, Learning and Technology at Rural Roads. And I'd heard incredible things about Rural Roads. So off I went. Yeah, it was a big leap. 
in faith. And yeah, that's interesting because I'm a Royal Roads alumni and uh, I took the Master of Arts in Leadership and um, it's great school, great program. You know, they don't they don't call it life changing for nothing. And um, yeah, it was all pre COVID and residency was uh, awesome and fun. And most of most, if not all, um, the courses were fun. (laughs) be careful what i say um (laughs) good um so why why mallet like because i know that they have a health leadership and you know that i mean it's streamlined right for people in in your industry why did you pick the malat program uh, as opposed to the ma leadership or even the ma leadership with a health uh, focus it's a really good question i think i had a job interview recently that got me my current job, which um, is the virtual health learning consultant for Fraser health Um, where I stated this and I just connected the two things just now, as you said it Um, for some people, I think a vision of success is leadership in terms of a position. And for me, it's always been more about creating success in others and being the launch point for them. And so although I loved the sections on leadership uh, in the Mallet program, because they did design uh, components of, of, you know, leadership and examination of types of leadership styles into their curriculum, loved it. Uh, And I loved, went back the other day and looked at some of my posts and things on that. Um, and they're so relevant right now, especially when we're building strategy for how to care virtually for patients. Um, I just leaned into the education side more. I connected more with the course description of what I would have. And um, I wouldn't say I'm super, super techie, but I love to learn how to use uh, different tools and different platforms. And so I was really keen to push that edge of my knowledge too, which um, which it did. Yeah. And better, better stated connected with me with a lot of people who were very techie and I could lean into as a, as a community and ask the question. And I don't mind being vulnerable so I can say, I have no idea what I'm doing. Can you help me? And that would be okay. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That, that's a good segue into uh, the next thing I was going to ask. And Sally, feel free to jump in anytime, girl. Oh, I am just <laughs> like the questions here are just stacking up as I'm listening, stacking up. Yeah, they are. As I'm listening to Christy, and one of the things that is that's coming to mind is your responsibility as a um, respiratory. Sorry, what was the okay thing? therapist? See, the UK. We don't not have our teas in the UK. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah. um, and I'm just thinking of you know really the level of responsibility you have because the patients' lives are in your hands. But then when you're teaching, you know um, when you're teaching. It's one step even further away. You have this, you know, added layer of responsibility because what you are teaching, how you are preparing these people to perform this in out there in their professional lives, all traces back to this learning experience and their level of understanding and ability. And um, I think that I've noticed this before, like Tim said, you know, vocational the term vocational surrounds nursing as a whole and i've noticed this at vancouver island university where i work we have fabulous conversations with the nursing faculty around pedagogy and it's really interesting to see in the virtual world 
how we actually, I think that we're getting closer because there's these opportunities for, you know, those technical, the technical skills. Like we're both, I think both fields are following the direction anyway. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like I, I feel that too. And, and, and I'm really, I've been pushing since May and that's probably why they gave me the job that they gave me. Um, pushing since May to, to follow this line that, you know, the way we grab on to training our healthcare providers, how to virtually care for their patients is a big deal because they're not only caring in one-on-one assessment consult type conversations, but, you know, look at like, for example, a dietitian leading a group of 20 people on a zoom call, right? And are they doing an hour and a half PowerPoint dump? Or are they actually using breakout rooms and leveraging annotations and engaging? And it's important. It's super important. And so it's probably why meeting after meeting, they just finally said, just shut her up and give her own job. So it seems to be what they did. (laughs) Well, I mean, mean, you bring up stuff that's, that's no different than in the world of higher ed, right. Or in TVET. I mean, it's, you know, we're used to teaching six hours a day in a classroom and boom, we make a flip within a weekend. And now people are teaching six hours on a computer and expecting their apprentices or their students to tune in for six hours, which makes me, it boggles my mind, right? Um, I want to circle back for just a second because uh, there was an interesting quote that you have. You have a blog, which is great. I do. Oh no, and, you've been reading my blog. Well, <laughs> we do our homework. Yeah. We do our homework. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you, you have a blog and there's a really great quote on it because it's, it's very similar to stuff that I've said before, but I'm, interesting to, I'm interested to know the origin of it. And the quote is, we rise by lifting others. Tell, tell us more about that. And it's not my quote. It's Robert Ingersoll. So it's stolen, Mm -hmm. but I think it, it lends back to that concept of success for me is not one where I'm out in front. It's where I'm a, I'm a piece of getting so many other individuals where they need to be. And I think it's hard to get there sometimes depending on your personality and depending on when I did my um, rehabilitation from my (laughs) traumatic work experience, I learned a lot about ego and how it drives us and, and the voice inside of our head. And I think to get comfortable in a space where you're not always trying to prove yourself, you know, depending on what drives you, I've seen so many educators and leaders who are all about, all about them, all about them. And look at me and look what I can do. And to me, it's, it's about just like seeing others flourish and holding space for them and doing that with a sense of, you know, not to be cheesy, but a sense of love, which is at the root of it for me, because if you're not doing something with love, it, there tends to be an inflection of fear in there. And it might be fear, like I have to prove myself that I'm good enough for this job or I'm good enough to be your teacher. Or I'm good enough to be the instructor while you're the student. And, and the humility and vulnerability, we've seen this in, um, in my thesis research. I researched, um, I kind of built an online module for preparing learners for that infant resuscitation class 
because I felt that we weren't necessarily preparing them uh, fully in really great psychological safety for their learning day. It's a high stakes training day. If you fail it, you actually really can't work. Like, you know, there's remediation, but there were some managers that said straight up, like, if you fail this, don't bother coming to work the next day, which is a horrible, <laughs> right? No pressure. No like pressure. Like the job itself doesn't have enough pressure on it. Like and you got weirdos itself. like that saying that. Yes. So, I taught a lot of these courses. In fact, because I was an RT, I felt like I had something to prove because they were mostly taught by nurses, sometimes physicians. And uh, instead of teaching the mandatory three courses a year, I taught around three a month. Um, and to do that, I taught at five different hospitals. So I got to see many, many different facilitators and instructors and their behaviors. And that's where my thesis came from is watching and observing and seeing the real uh, difference in how the learners were set for a safe, vulnerable space to make a mistake and learn from it. And that was um, incredible. The interviews that we had for my research was wonderful. I put them through this module as just a component of their blended learning prep for the in-person and um, just ask them questions about how the module is designed, how we could make it better, but then how did it impact your learning on the, the in-person training day? And two of the biggest things that came out of it were um, uh, a model for how to do this type of online pre-briefing module or course and um, a list of improved facilitator training components, let's say, behaviors that were necessary to embrace, to be humble, to, to say, I'm valuable. Like I can make mistakes as your instructor. I probably will screw up today too. That's okay. Because in these SIM days, like it's, it's so powerful to make a mistake because usually you're in the middle of something really important, like ventilating a baby with your bag or giving compressions or giving a medication. So to screw up is awesome. That's where we want you to mess up. We don't want you to mess up out in the real world. Right. So mess up here. This is a great space to do that. And let us all talk it through, right? As a group and go, okay, what were you thinking at that time? Because sometimes you, you're in your practice, you're an RT, you're a nurse, whatever, and you see something done and you don't have the opportunity to kind of hash it out or chat it through. And you build that a little bit into your mental model of, Oh, okay, that's the way things can be done. Or maybe that's the right way to do things. Or you see a doctor do something and you're like, oh, well, he's super incredible doctor. I have a lot of respect for him. Maybe that's what's supposed to be done. Maybe that's the way that is done. And you build an instrumental model. Maybe a year later you find out, well, that's wrong. So the ability to talk things through and feel safe to ask questions is, is, is where I try to consistently create space for every area of my interactions, whether it be with a learner or in a team. So talk to us a little bit about neuroleadership, Christy, and what is it concept and how you seem to have connected it to what you're doing? I think neuroleadership to me, and I was just listening to um, another uh, webinar yesterday. To me, it's a recognition of 
the way the brain functions. It's maybe not what I blogged about, but this is where I'm going with this today. Um, <laughs> um, so to me, when you can connect the way the brain functions and when identify what situations create a reptilian instinctive downstairs brain environment, reactive, fear-based, uh, versus a more prefrontal cortex, what we call the wise old owl, calm, creative, connected. So if you want your team to be creative, innovative, work well together and collaborate, you need to hold space for them to be in their prefrontal cortex. They can't feel threatened. They will sit back and lean out if they feel threatened. And so when you, if you want your team to lean in, you best know how to create a safe space for them where they won't feel judged no matter what comes out of their mouth. So <clears throat> I think it doesn't matter where I sit, whether it's, like I said, in a team meeting or with a patient holding their hand or with a family member holding their hand, you've got to create safe spaces for connection and community. And some people seem to think that that causes burnout or exhaustion or it's too much work, but it's the opposite. It's a hundred percent rejuvenating. It brings you so much more energy for me to be called at 2 AM with my pager as an RT and up to, you know, a nurse who was really struggling because her patient's not struggling to breathe and they do not resuscitate. And they don't quite, maybe they're a new nurse and maybe they don't know what to say to the, the family. To hold space for that family, it became one of my most cherished moments as a healthcare provider to sit with family and just describe to them from my years of experience what the end stages of life were going to look like and hold space for their loss and recognize their grief and just sit and cry with them. Like, you know, I'm going to walk this with you you know, talk to them. I'm sure that they can hear you. This is what this might look like. And yeah, just holding space and caring. So I, th I think that concept, maybe that's what it, um, I would attach neuroleadership to now is just an acknowledgement of finding out um, how to create safe spaces in environments. Very cool. Sally, you better ask a question. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's all good. My yeah. wife, my wife, when she was in her, she was in long-term care and oh. right. Like, and, and like, I always held a special level of respect for those who worked with children at children's yeah. hospital, cancer and long-term care. Like I, in my, in my trades life, I did, I, I helped re renovate Dr. Peter center and mm. Oh, I'm getting emotional yeah. even right now. And that's 20 years removed, right? Yeah. And I'm, yeah. Sally, take over. I'm going to go cry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tim's just going to cry into his coffee over moment. there. Oh. You know, yeah, I mean, it is, Chrissy, it's just as such powerful things that you're saying. And I think that, you know, what I'm really hearing around this, first of all, you saying, you know, set your ego aside, really taking that time through your own experience is life experience and it sounds like a combination of your education and also you know your unfortunate experience um, at work when there wasn't harmony there yeah. where there wasn't a safe space and what that did to you emotionally but in a way it's um, you know what I was hearing there is 
one of the things that Donald Schoen writes about is um, this reflection in action, which I'm hearing as you're talking about your, you know, really your pedagogical approach, mm. um, but also in your own life as well, that reflection in action and on action. And I think that um, when we talk about leaders that, you know, want to get the job done, there's this power differential. Mm. And um, when we think about taking somebody that's been told, if you don't pass this, don't come to work tomorrow. And, and, and I do happen to know about this because I mentioned to you briefly um, earlier today that my daughter is a nurse in at um, Burnaby General in, mm. in, in the emergency room. And she took her seven lev- second level emergency room training this year. And it has the same boundary on it. If you don't pass, you cannot return to the emergency room where you've been working for the last, you know, 18 months or something like that. So a huge amount of stress on on the learner. And I I do understand, I understand the history of where that's come from. Mm -hmm. But I also think that now with this reflects your, you know, a philosophy around how learners, what it means to learn. And I think that with more educators with this crossover with you know having Mm. an actual educational philosophy that is grounded in you know those that came before us that have these deep understanding on how people learn when we ground our practice in theory in proven theories Mm -hmm. then we cannot act in this behaviorist paradigm and so I think this is a very, you know, exciting time as such when we're hearing people say about we, because to, to say, you know, this idea is you part, if you fail, um, you don't get to go back to work tomorrow. And we know why people said that. That was very fear-based. You cannot make a, mis- a mistake on a living being. We cannot take that risk. Okay, so you're not ready. Mm-hmm. Let's see what this person needs. Let's see what this, you know, what, what else they need. And so I think when we approach education from that, that lens, and, and I'm, I'm going to draw this over to a TV show that I don't know any, if any of you have watched this, The Good Place. Oh, yeah. Have you, have you heard about it? Yeah, oh, yeah, you have. And it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not recommending anybody give up hours and hours of their life to watch this, but one of the message that just you take away from it is that, you know, humans can, one of their unique traits is that we can learn to be better, but better at whatever it is we're learning to, that we desire to be. And, and I think that, you know, when we, when we consider that every time we create, a, you know, a simulation, an activity for our learners, and like you said, that just having you know, your, your students come into Zoom for an hour and a half and, and do a PowerPoint dump. We haven't considered our learners. What we've considered is ourselves as teachers, mm-hmm. which, you know, kind of comes full circle back into that Chad Flynn's article that he wrote way back when. That I don't know whether you've seen this, but it's uh, the If It Ain't Broke break it and it really is that whole thing about you know many of us come to teaching 
And we do it, you know, kind of through the, you know, in trades, we do it through the, the back door as that, you know, we don't go through teach training. Uh, we become um, masters in our trade and then we go into uh, the post-secondary system and mm. we start to teach. And the focus that we're given, and Tim, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the focus that really that, that's given to us to begin with is that we need to become great teachers. And so we, everything is about what I'm going to do. We go into the classroom, we're told to write up our learning objectives, told to tell the students what they're focusing on, what time coffee is, you know, and this makes us a good teacher. Totally, yeah, I agree. But what I'm hearing from you, um, Christy, really is, I think the way that so many of us are looking at education now is we're looking through the lens of those learners and we're using, looking through educational theory. Mm -hmm. You gave me a slot there to speak, Tim, but I, you know, I couldn't stop. I I know, I know. Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And I think it, uh, we're getting there, we're learning and I'm hearing, oh, we're bringing patients in so much more often than we were to design programs, right? Yay. Walking their journey, doing patient journey mapping, having the providers or the designers of a service do empathy mapping. So those components in the Mallet program, um, the design thinking course that we did was phenomenal to, to lend me those skills to be able to to say, yes, like, give me some patients, give me some providers, I need to do focus groups, and we will walk journeys, and we will do mapping. And it lends itself for individualization. And I have a child who's not neurotypical. And watching him struggle in school, so this has also been a good component of my education on pedagogy and learning styles and things like that is watching him walk through the education system and every year just crying at the beginning of the year because I would have to re-explain him and think oh god like how will we make it through this year um you know his mental health would suffer and just like praying for individualized options for demonstrating learning outcomes Right. Like, please don't make him repeat the same question or concept again and again, because to his brain, it was almost like painful to repeat. Right. And that's our that's our kind of get out your ruler and smack the desk. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. That's fine. But he's got it scaffolded Add a little bit of difficulty and then a little bit more. (laughs) He can't repeat just that journey, I think. Plus, you know, all of those things that you said, Sally, and then watching it slowly evolve into healthcare of this individualized care, respect for the needs and the goals of the particular patient that you're working with, making the choice in the moment of, is it acceptable for me to do your visit or your assessment um, by phone or by video, or does it have to be in person? What do you need, Right. Um, so I'm loving that because that to me speaks respectfully to the learner, to the patient. Um, it speaks with love, right? You go back to it. To me, it speaks with love, connection, 
just creating belonging and, and a sense of safe space. Yeah. So. And, and, you know, it, I was reminded as you were talking there of um, Kieran Egan, he said, uh, and he's probably written about this as well. He said that thing is that we've known for a really long time how to educate people. Mm. But what we don't know how to do is to educate people cheaply. Like that's our problem. So when we think of these clusters of children, you know, I don't know how many are in a class these days because it's been a while since I had kids in school. But, mm. you know, I, I can't imagine having 30 little people in, in class. And, and I know how those individual education plans work. They're not individualized education plans. They're already pre-structured and they're going to take, a, you know, a piece from here, a piece from there, and then say this is about your child. But your approach is what you're suggesting is really coming from the child so or from the person that you're working mm -hmm. with, that you're shaping it around them, not that it's already preset and we're going to take a portion of this, that, and, and the other so I think that, you know, it does come round to this fact that when we're trying to do everything for low cost, which um, I've heard that rumbling a lot just recently, especially with everything going to virtual platforms. And, um, you know, there's, uh, I mean, the student, student unions across the country are saying we're demanding a refund on our tuition. Mm. And, you know, educators like myself and you know the people that I seem to communicate with on a regular basis we're all about this provides an incredible opportunity for us to individualize your educational journey in a way that we haven't been able to do in a physical space but it takes so much time right and yeah yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, I think I can't remember who I was talking to over the summer, maybe my brother-in-law, we were talking about this concept of kind of swarming in an interdisciplinary team. Um, so I think the topic was like case managers for mental health and substance use programs, right? So instead of a case manager having 10, 15, 20 patients that they care for throughout the year, um, that the entire interdisciplinary team, social workers, counselors, pharmacists swarmed one person at a time and focused on them for like one or two straight weeks, all their attention. And the outcomes were much more profound in terms of long-term impact. So maybe that's a model that you could think about like a swarming interdisciplinary model, right? Attack it all at once with all the ammunition you have instead of spreading it out torturously over a long duration and really not doing a thorough, comprehensive job of it, maybe. Yeah, and I think those deconstructing as well, because you're talking about this holistic approach, aren't you? This is, you know, and I think that the tendency to organize education goes into this deconstruction and we end up with these deconstructed chunks of knowledge that they don't then you know the whole is more than some of all these parts and and but then of course the question comes forth as well we can't do that in large numbers mm. so i wonder how much in i'm sure in the medical field the same thing 
to take that approach, although, Mm. as you said, the outcomes are profound, and I believe they would be in education as well, we have to encourage somewhere along the line an increasing in funding because these things to be done well Mm. um, and to have the influence on people's lives, as you're suggesting, that's that's not an equation that fits into a, a business model that is looking at, I guess, the bottom line all the way through. Yeah, I guess unless you're doing from a health economics fully comprehensive review, like do does the result give us significant cost benefits and more efficiencies? So a study, a like more long-term study of that approach and see like it does it actually make the system more efficient. Yeah, yeah, it's that's interesting. Good point, Sally. I want to I want to jump in. No, you're not allowed to jump in. We're talking here, Tim. Um, yeah, I was okay. gonna say I was gonna say just for quickly that that um, I'm, I swear I'm not marketing the Mallet program today. Elizabeth will love me, but um, that was one of the the most incredible components of the Mallet program to me. Um, that I was the only person in healthcare, and at first I thought, oh God. I don't know if this will work. Like no one else is in healthcare. How will I apply anything? And listening outside of my context and going, oh my God, why are we not doing that in healthcare? Right? Like, oh, we could totally replicate that. And that would be incredible. It was phenomenal. So the learning was exponential because I was always outside silo and listening with a fresh lens and just going, oh, okay, how could I pull the base concept from from where you sit in your context and apply it to to my role in healthcare and specifically at that time virtual health mm, so cool you're both convincing me that you know i need to go to royal roads It's a great life changing. It's a great school. It's a great school. Like I'm, yeah. Yeah. You can't say enough about it and you sound like a bit of an idiot, but it's, it's just the thinking and the faculty and the core mission and values of like, I think they refreshed their marketing or their, their strategy um, this year. And I think what were the three components like courage, caring, compassion or something like that. Yeah, I'm like, oh, those are my values. Love it. Good choices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great school. And all of their programs on the on uh the social science side that I know of, absolutely phenomenal. And I bumped into a couple uh MBA students when I was there in my second residency. And their their program is actually a year longer than most MBAs in the country. And I'm like, okay, so why? And they're like, well, because we do these co-ops and some of them are global and like, okay, that's interesting. Cause they build in this idea of systems thinking and leadership mm. into the MBA program. So it's not strictly about operations management and, and, you know, a, through an operations lens that there's a lot of it that, that goes through a leadership lens too. And it, it, it's interesting cause I wanted to segue into this one question before we move on to other stuff. Um, the the introduction you mentioned an introduction to the theory of intrapreneurship and you talk about the idea of systems and design thinking coming together mm-hmm. and it really captured my attention because i'm a big systems thinker and mm-hmm. i'm also a big design thinker mm-hmm. there's i i learn 
I, well, you should see my notes. It's just one big doodle page. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's, I love it, Tim's it, notes. Yeah. yeah, it just, it captured my attention. And I wanted to ask you a little mm-hmm. bit more about that one. Um, what kind of an impact did it make on you? And it sounds like you already had some of those inclinings before you got into the program, but how did this now become, you know, a, a fertile soil for you to, to really dig into? Um, mm. and, and what did you read in this area that made an impact on you? Question. I'm probably going to say Twitter. Um, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough. Um, so uh, the design thinking I think was new to me in the components and the process. And in the Mallet program, we walked, uh, the Stanford D school design school, um, process and tested it out. And I was just so thrilled with the results. Like we had Um, I think my group was uh, quite a mixture of um, a teacher and a vet. We had a vet in our program who ran ran a Guitars for Vets uh, program. And just again, like outside context, when we got to to the root of what we were doing, we just, we came up with this great application of one tool that we could use for learners that would cross context. And I thought that was so cool. Um, so design thinking to me was foreign in its structure, but of course, one of the key components is empathy in the beginning. And so that, that grounded me quite intensely. And, and why wouldn't you walk through with an empathetic lens to design something better for someone, particularly in healthcare, right? Yeah, this past week, um, I attended as many pieces as I could of the virtual conference for Alberta Health Services, um, uh, their innovation and quality forum. And I was in a work meeting and I jumped late into a patient journey mapping session. And it was just so powerful to hear a patient recollect the intense and emotional and traumatizing components of their journey in that, in that mapping exercise. Like how vulnerable would you have to be on a Zoom call with, I think there was like 90 people in the room to walk through your process and like how it was about, um, he was on dialysis. And I think at some point he said that in between dialysis, his young son wouldn't actually know whether he could rely on the fact that his father would be alive when he walked into the, his bedroom because he was so sick. He became desensitized to the fact that paramedics would be in the house in the middle of the night, right? Listening to this, bumps in his journey and the massive areas for improvement was phenomenal. And I think I love how it ties to systems thinking because obviously healthcare is a massive system and it's extremely complex. And, you know, when you just join into healthcare, you think, you know, all the answers and you think you have all the solutions and you go, well, if only we did this. And like, yeah, if you did that, then this would happen. And then what about this? And what about that? So it's a domino effect. And I briefly worked as a quality improvement consultant um, a couple of years ago as I was finding my way into the virtual health team. And um, being able to use the quality improvement lens, which is a lot of cycles of identifying like what change are we going to make and how will we know that that change makes an improvement? And then testing little tiny, of course, we call them PDSA cycles, right? The plan, do, study, act, little cycles of change. Um, And then knowing that um, in the mallet, we were introduced to Kenevin 
spelled really funny. It's the, you know, the CY, you know, this, I can't yeah, even I'm spell it. I'm a big Kneffen fan. Kneffen fan. Awesome. Yeah. And I saw this Twitter, this Twitter post and I connected it to healthcare and he was like a DevOps, like software. And he's like, look at this healthcare lady who's linking into my presentation. <laughs> on What's going on? Yeah, right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, the cake rocket child chaos kind of thing. Um, and I thought, oh, this is so cool because we sit here and it just allowed me to frame, okay, we're here, right? This is where we sit and we'll probably always be here in, in complexity. So what do we do, right? We just test, you pick something, you pick something little, you test it, you make an improvement, but how do you make a good improvement? Well, you, you design it well, right? And you work with the users of the program that you're designing or the care that you're designing. So I think that's where that all connected for me and, and fell into place. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Cause I remember learning, bumping into the Kinefin when in my, in my program and literally lights are going off in my brain. Cause it's like, okay, this is why people in TVET who are out in the field have such a hard time transitioning when we get into education. It's because when we're out in the field, everything's complicated. It's, it's a long string of events that we put in a linear fashion and we just go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and we get masters or be, we become masters at doing that. And then we get hired as SMEs and we're brought into a complex environment where it's not linear anymore, but we're used to linear and we expect the complex to work like the complicated. And that's what brings a ton of frustration because we come to it, like you just said, well, if we just did this, it would fix it. Well, yeah, but there's four layers of complexity here that you have to think about. And so it's like taking that chessboard and instead of playing in two dimensions, now you're playing in four or five dimensions. Like you have four or five layers of this chessboard. And I, I'm convinced that people in TVET who have the biggest struggles with the system are thinking in a complicated fashion rather than in a complex fashion. And because they can't handle that, they slip into the chaos. And I'm, there's my little Kinefin ex explanation yeah, oh, there. Sally's saying, give me a chance to talk. You I, I have to Sorry. leave. No, I have to leave. I have to drag myself away. This is wonderful. Keep going. Keep going. Thank you, Sally. So lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Take care. Bye. Good. So we were talking yeah. about Kinefin and the connection between complexity and, and yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. It's so cool. I think that is to me, you know, same in healthcare, right? Like it seems like it's this complicated string of, if you do this, then you do that, then this happens with the patient. And if this, then this, not always, what about this and this and this? So that's where I love reflection and debrief right? Like in healthcare simulation, we talk about debrief, debrief, debrief. And that was like the biggest component of healthcare sim um, research to this date is all surrounding the debrief section. Um, and then my research, my thesis um, brought more, there, I could see in the readings that there was maybe a necessity to examine the, the pre-brief and the preparation. So that's where I, I, I leaned into my research, preparing the learners for the simulation. 
And, but debrief is so, it's so important and it's so important to facilitate it gently and openly um, and talk it through. Because like, as we mentioned earlier, you know, if you build a mental model around something that you've seen and it's maybe not correct or it's got errors in it, that's important to identify, right? And in some places this is like really, takes place informally, like a rant at the end of your shift. <laughs> exactly. Yep. yep. But that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's still a debrief, right? Yep. Sometimes I would go and I would be like, oh, I can't believe what this physician did, like, or this nurse or whatever, like they did this and this. And then someone would say, because we're all like, you know, changing out of our scrubs and clogs or whatever we're doing at the end of the day. And they would say, oh, well, did you try this? And I would go, oh. Oh no, that's a really good idea. Right. Like it's great. The rant at the end of the day is like an informal debrief session, I think. So. Sure. Yeah. And it's also, it also releases some of that emotion that's pent up with, uh, with, with comes with the job. Right. I mean, it's, I, I'm <clears throat> I, again, in my career out in the field, I spent a lot of time in hospitals and, mm-hmm. and although I was a plumber pipe fitter, I mean, I hung around nurses a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I married a nurse and <laughs> You know, so you, you get that behind the curtain look once in a while yes. and she would come home and kind of have the same thing and, or she'd have a particularly hard day where, you know, um, a patient passed on and, yeah. you know, and, and dealing with the family and being very empathetic and caring that way. And then turning around and having to deal with the doctor and the system and that, and she yeah. just gets so frustrated and, mm-hmm. you know, just mm-hmm. crying and want to, you know, just smash things at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Some rage. And, um, oh, just like, okay, you go. Cause you know, I'm not going to get in front of that. Yeah. Um, Should you take up some Taekwondo that helped me? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was really good. Actually. Taekwondo. I ended up getting my black belt. My husband and I started, we put our kids in Okay. Um, Taekwondo. And then I was watching, I used to dance. And so the, the Pumse, the forms, right. I connected with, I'm like, Oh, this is cool. This is like dance. I could do this and I could punch things and I might be able to kick my husband in the head. And nice. so we, we actually both signed up and, um, after I guess three years, we both tested at the same time in the same cycle for our black belts. And he kept going and I tapped out. I was like in the middle of mallet and overwhelmed and, but, um, really great for healthcare providers. First of all, you get the, benefit of um self-defense right like because you have to protect yourself sometimes there's patients that are aggressive and we've had some horrific things happen to nurses and doctors over the years so you need to be able to protect yourself but i also like literally got to take my aggression out on my husband a lot and we put our full gear on pads and helmets and go at each other it was great marriage counseling yeah you remember that argument last night (laughs) totally down on the floor we're gonna work this out (laughs) right now um yeah and that's i mean i i power lifted for a number of years and oh yeah um, and uh so yeah it's i totally understand where it's just you get into this for me it was walking into the gym it was Mm. okay all my day that happened it's now coming out here and um yeah, really, really yeah. good. What What are you reading right now? So coming out of Mallet, mm. like when I came out of my master's degree, it mm. was like, okay, I'm done with reading for a long time. But, but I, within a couple of weeks, I was back to reading. What mm. are you reading right now? Um, we actually um, had a little bit of a vacation a few weeks ago. So I, I bought a new book so I could spend some time just doing nothing connected to a screen. Um, and I'm reading From the Ashes, which is by Jesse Thistle. So that is an incredibly intense, emotional, powerful story of a young um, 
Métis Canadian growing up in some pretty unbelievable conditions with his father being an alcoholic and trying to survive starvation as three children left in an apartment all day by themselves to fend for themselves um, and his journey with drugs and alcohol. Um, so it's pretty, uh, pretty powerful. I'm only about three quarters of the way through, but um, yeah, one of my favorite novels of all time is Indian Horse by Richard Wagamese. Yeah, Richard Wagamese was from Kamloops, which is close to my heart as well because of my, my respiratory program up there. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but incredible, incredible author describing, you know, what happened to these children in residential schools and, and hearing their stories. And I think it's so important to know, just to know more, just to absorb the information and to sift through it and what that means and what happened and just bringing it all out into the open and talking to my children about it. Right. Like this is a thing that happened and they look at me like, how, how did the police just take the children away? And that was okay. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why is this okay? Why was that okay? And, and how do you explain that? But so good for them to know that, that um, adults screw up in very, very, very big horrific ways. And then we oh, need to absolutely. learn from those lessons. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what I'm reading. Great wow. book. So who, who has influenced your thinking the most lately? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I would actually say my thesis supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> because that's sort of where I've been so immersed, right? Um, just critically thinking and, and questioning and recognizing bias bias and, and going back and being clear. Like, what do you mean by that? Right. So I think that was a really cool process as intense as it is. And, and some people describe their thesis writing process as like, Oh my God, get me out of here. And it was intense. And, and, you know, after the third or fourth big rewrite, I had to rewrite three times, um, two sections. Um, because she didn't like the way it was sort of laid out and it didn't make sense. And she was right. It flowed so much better when we fixed it, but my God, to rewrite two huge sections just felt like I just cried. But <clears throat> I think that she, because the, that's what's been up uh, recently for me, she's definitely influenced my thinking in terms of like, you know, making connections and really ask, asking myself, like, what do I mean by that? And what's actionable there? And realistically, what could we do? and bring it down, make it more concise, get to the point. Yeah. Cause I always was such a big idea thinker that they always had to ground me like, okay, Christy, bring it down, bring it down smaller. Yeah. Even smaller because I had big ideas. Right. But again, going back to Kinevin and small cycles of tests and change and bring it down to something tiny and actionable that you can build on and then scale. Who are you following right now on the internet? Who am I following on the internet? Oh, I think I'm really following the ed tech community a lot. Um, I'm so bad with names and details. You're probably not going to get anything good out of me in terms of like exact people. Cause I'm so bad, especially in the heat of the moment. Um, a lot of the ed tech community, um, but also uh, some of the health futurists folks maybe. And you know what their vision is. Cause that just blew right out of the water. Right. Like where, where did we think things were going? We, we achieved in virtual health 
in our team, we saw change that would have taken us six, eight years happen in three weeks, maybe two weeks. It was phenomenal. And it was all because everyone dedicated the resources and had a little bit more open privacy and security rules, right? That blew open. Yeah. How do you provide care for people instantaneously across a distance that blew our privacy and security out of the water? So they reframed, you know, the way we got consent for things and uh, approvals for platforms and applications just went, yep, here you go. Use this. Like use Zoom. Oh my God. <laughs> it would take me a year to get the privacy impact assessment and the security review for using Zoom in my organization. It would take me a year, I'm sure of it. And then instantaneously absorbing our team was only four people, a leader and three clinical project leads, right? And so we absorbed in oh, probably eight individuals, project managers, strategists from other areas, and used them um, to run cycles of of change and and strategy and where are we focusing and what services are we offering so it was awesome just like massive focus so to see everyone again swarm yeah <laughs> swarm focus and blow it out of the water was great see and that's an interesting way to put it too right because I, I like that idea of that that swarming interdisciplinary approach mm. and and at first i'm thinking swarming you can <laughs> feel word. swamped with all these people but it makes sense right that if you're giving right. such a, a, a a large amount of effort and focus and for lack of a better term concern and a lot of mm-hmm. empathy mm-hmm. And, a, and a lot of intervention um two weeks may seem like an eternity when you're you know day four day five mm-hmm. but by the time you're at day 10 12 14 it's you're so much further ahead mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. and i mean I'm, I'm saying that as i stand outside the system and and watch and and you know make comments but it's, it's kind of the same thing in what we've been dealing with with TVET. And, you know, we've been saying for years, you can't do this online. You can't do this online. It's just impossible. Mm. Um, and even three years ago, it was like, ladies and gentlemen, we need to take some of this stuff digitally. We need to do some of this hybrid. And no, no, we can never do that. And then, mm. you know, March 10th comes. Mm-hmm. And then within two weeks, oh, I guess we can do this online. Uh, oh, well, you can, we can do that too. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. you know, I, there's nothing I think good on, on a lot of fronts with COVID, but in this regard, it's proven to us that in crisis mode, mm-hmm. for the most part, we can get a lot of stuff done. Mm-hmm. It's not a good way to operate, right? Uh, no. In the long term. Yeah. And um, kind of leads me to the, to one, one other question of, you know, as a, as a health professional, what do you, what is your take on, how education and people you work with will emerge when COVID is no longer a part of our conversation in the present tense. I hope that we don't see a huge fallback into how we used to deliver care because this works so well for some patients. And I think what I'm hearing when I, um, when I, pushed the conversation early on in May, I pushed for the creation of a networked community of super users and we call them the Alliance. (laughs) So cool. That is very cool. Go Mallet program. So um, we advertised what the benefits might be to have boots on the ground support shoulder to shoulder, someone on your own team who is connected to the virtual health team, to our health informatics team, to our information technology team and our professional practice team. And 
in a continual conversation. And so we advertised out in a video, I made a Powtoon and we recruited about 40 people who, from what I'm hearing, will never go back. They are loving it. They're forging ahead. There are early adopters, right? Like that's really who we captured. Um, and they're forging ahead. And the patient experience pieces that they're bringing back to us are great, transformative, like um, mothers who, who have new babies and two littles who aren't even in preschool and they can do their visit virtually versus dragging those little threes into a, you know, a clinic. Like, can you imagine? Oh, I'd cry if I could do that when I had children. Um, those kind of pieces, right? Like thinking about travel, right? Not traveling two hours to get to an appointment. Um, so I, I really hope we listen to those patient experience, qualitative descriptions. And that's why I really want to do some more journey mapping and empathy mapping um, is to get that side of it. We have surveys, of course, we built a really strong evaluation framework and we have surveys too, so we can lean into those. Um, but there's always ways to get good data. Uh, so I really hope we don't fall back and I'm now connected to our uh, educator community of practice for our organization and getting ready to talk to them about um, leveraging some good teaching skills in virtual environments. And I think they're going to like teaching virtually when they're given the knowledge and the go ahead to do it well right? Like if they did used to do an hour PowerPoint video in person presentation, and then just a little discussion, like how do you, you don't want to replicate that. So how do we do that? Well, like, you know, could you do 20 minutes of content, breakout rooms, co-creation of a new tool or a resource, pull them back, discuss, and then release them for open peer discussion, right? Like, the patients sometimes miss that connectedness when you go into a clinic to do education, right? Like you don't get to chat with each other. So how do we replicate that if we possibly can? Maybe hybrid is great. Maybe, you know, socially distanced with masks at this point in time is good. Um, but hopefully that won't be um, always a concern. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. So I think I just hope we don't fall back. I hope we, we learn to love some of the pieces that work really well for some people and acknowledge that it's not for everyone. Um, and that as professionals, as healthcare professionals, we need to be given that latitude to choose and individualize how you engage with a patient or a group to teach, right? Should it really, this really needs to be done in person for this particular group, right? If it's older adults and they're struggling with their devices and the cognition's not there and they don't have access to a device or Wi-Fi, right? Access is a big issue for healthcare. We've created a new disparity. So now if you don't fit a certain demographic or um, if you don't have Wi-Fi, if you don't have a device, you now can't access virtual care, Right. So this is a new, a new equity piece that we're examining right now. And we're just one of several, many health authorities. So how do we approach that as a wider community instead of just one health authority trying to pick at it with an ax? Can we do it collaboratively? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Because there's, there's a lot of chatter going on in the educational world too about equity accessibility mm -hmm. and, and not just well, in a lot of different ways, but you know, not everybody has a computer. Lots of mm -hmm. people work on a phone, right? Mm -hmm. And then, mm -hmm. okay, Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. 
you can't go to Starbucks and just sit down for a couple hours anymore. Mm-hmm. Especially when you get into areas that like even in the interior or up north where, you know, even cell data is sometimes yeah. hard to get into. Yeah. And uh, huge questions for the system to try and figure out and, mm-hmm. and work their yeah. way through. Yeah. Exciting. Those are going to be the big, the big steps. Hopefully someone will come up with some great idea. Maybe we'll go back to the phone booth type deal. Wouldn't that be interesting, right? I think it would be super cool. China, I think China's already done it where they have like booths where you get your virtual care. And I think it's a great idea. Yeah. 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 Like if you don't have access, why wouldn't you just walk down to the Safeway or maybe a pharmacy, right? Maybe it sits in a pharmacy and it's a booth and it's a slick screen that you can clean easily and off you go. Maybe you have like, maybe you can access your email and just get your link for your zoom meeting or however type in your doxy.me is another platform that we see a lot. Um, or doxy me, sorry. Uh, maybe that would be nice. Just hop into the booth, see your practitioner and off you go. But yeah, if you don't have Wi-Fi, it's a big deal. If you don't have devices, it's you, you don't get the access to the care that a lot of people do. Sure. So. And it can even become, um, um, an equity issue in regards to just demographic. Like if you're, if you're low or extreme low mm-hmm. income and you have a cell phone, but maybe you have a very limited data plan. Yes. Yeah. Right. Are you, now you're looking at, okay, am I going to spend data on mm. this meeting? Or am I, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause those are, those are big questions. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, it's a huge piece. And then you get into um, complexities of language, right? We have translation services. It's a bit clunky into Zoom right now, but yeah. And cultural sensitivity. That's, it's, it's awesome. I really enjoy those conversations because it's all just like, talk it out, see what might work, test it, try and listen. <laughs> very, very design thinking of you. Yeah. <laughs> very emergent thinking. Of yeah. You. Right. Um, so what have you changed your mind on lately? Mm. What have I changed my mind on lately? Oh, that's a really good question. Hmm. Um, I'm going to go to this just cause it's been recent in my mind. Um, I spoke earlier to having a non-neurotypical child. <laughs> Starting to think the other one's not so neurotypical either. Um, <laughs> And it's funny. So I'll, I'll divulge. He's, he's on the, he's on the gifted side of non neurotypical, but some twice exceptionalities in that, that comes with some learning disabilities as well. Right. So I used to kind of approach his team and educators, like with this big bombarding framing of what works for him and how he learns and, in terms of the side of him that excelled, um, right? Like he's really good at this and he's really good at this. He, he does struggle with this a bit, but he's really good at this, right? And then this year, I just, I just kind of had had enough because I could see that he really, I mean, they don't qualify for learning support, right? We would get him side tutoring. So this year I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go in and I'm going to highlight all his learning disabilities. And lo and behold, he has learning support, (laughs) which is interesting, right? He doesn't qualify for it, but yeah, right. So this year I said, listen, um, it's actually better if you think of him as um, almost ADHD-ish, ish, ish, almost in 
like he's really grown a lot. He's 12 this year. So he's grown a lot over the last three years, but used to have some almost autistic like behaviors where like sound stimulates him, touch some stimulus for, you know, if there was a tag in his shirt, God forbid, he wouldn't make it through the day. Um, so I highlighted, yeah, I highlighted his, so I changed my mind on that. I said, you know what? I'm just going to go in and say that he needs help with this. And it's a lagging skill. If he had the skill, he would do it. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer. Um, I believe it's Dr. Ross Green who, who talks about lagging skills in children. And if a child can, then they do. They will. But if they can't, then they won't. And guess what happens? Behavioral issues because they're being asked to do something that they're actually not capable of. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. He's got some learning support this year. So I'm super happy about that. But I've also seen him grow. And I think it's sometimes just ages and stages, right? The brain develops whenever the hell it chooses to. So it just, it, I've seen him flourish, spontaneously cleaned out his desk yesterday at school of his own accord and his teacher was like oh do you want some help and he kind of they enjoyed themselves and he was kind of doing a little bop dance and having fun cleaning out his desk please i've never imagined that that would be possible that he would just decide to clean out the twenty thousand papers in his desk and actually put them in tabs in his binder right that's a big deal so baby steps um our youngest daughter abigail um kind of the same thing uh, she skipped two grades. So right. she's 15. She's graduating this year. We homeschool oh our kids. We've been homeschooling wow. our kids. It's one reason why my wife, my wife stopped nursing is we, we chose to homeschool. So she mm. stayed home. Mm-hmm. We're in a great system, great school, all, all that other stuff. So it's not like my wife had to teach everything. Mm-hmm. And when they got into junior high and high school, there was very little that she had to teach. Um, some chemistry and biology cause she loved that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, I'm convinced that if we stayed in the school system, my youngest daughter would be on medication. Yeah. Right. And, and it's, it's, uh, I, I, and I, I'm, I know homeschooling isn't for everybody. I get mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. but I'm so thankful that we did it because of well, all we have got four kids and they're all well, 21, 19, 17 and 15. Oh, and, wow. um, yeah. And all with varying degrees of funniness. My, my third youngest, Hannah, she has dwarfism. So, and, and so she's on the opposite end. Like she had some serious learning challenges. Right. And now you got Abigail who's, who could have potentially graduated at the same time as Hannah graduated. Mm. And Hannah's like, no, I don't want my younger sister graduating with me. I love her, but I'm not, no, this is my graduation. So we actually had to hold Abigail back and Mm -hmm. And that, there was a whole, con- so what, what you're talking mm-hmm. about, I'm like, yep, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Cause yeah. It, and you know, and I'm not disparaging the system because it, I'm, it's, it I've is got friends is. in the system. I, I understand <laughs> it. Right. Like it's, it's almost as nuts or maybe as nuts in a different way as healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. I, I totally get what you're saying. It's funny, right? Like I think uh, grade were we in? I don't even remember. Maybe grade five. We're starting to do a lot of critical thinking, a lot of reading about gifted and quirky, twice exceptional children. And 
I kind of reframed because we always talk about spectrums and it feels very linear. And, you know, if they're having a disability, they're at that end. And if they're excelling and they're gifted, then they're at that end. But really from what I've seen and what I've read, it's so much more like nonlinear. It feels globular. And yeah, it's, it's feels, spherical. Yep. It's spherical. And, and their brain is just wired however it is wired. And the areas that are lit up are lit up because they're lit up and the ones that aren't as like streamlined and connected and the neural pathways aren't firing they just aren't give it time like pruning and myelination will change right and they'll grow and that's I think really like also lent itself to the conversation about neural leadership and meeting people wherever they are as individuals right and embodying and like loving them for their strengths and supporting them through their journey of how their their where their struggles are um because yeah i mean you hear so many brilliant quotes better than anything i would ever say about how real growth comes from challenge and struggle and adversity and it's true but i always am a bit cautious about how how much trauma we put people through, right? Like how much is too much? And, and in healthcare, in that simulation space, in my interviews with my participants for my research, two in particular were clearly traumatized by their educational experiences. One nurse told me that before this cycle of research steps that I put her through where I gave her my pre-briefing module, the previous training course, she sat in her car in the parking lot and shook before she went into the simulation training day. I just thought that's insane, right? Like she was shaking and, and crying. It can't be good for you. Right. And like, it's a training day. It's a training day. It, this is not, I'm going to the OR to resuscitate. And they were fine with that. When I asked, like, you know, did, did, did doing this course, does it like bring back trauma from actual resuscitation? She's like, no, no it's the opposite. When I'm in this, the real life scenario, I have flashbacks to the sim, <laughs> which is good, right? That's what you want. And, and you got to find that sweet spot of emotion in learning and the sweet spot of anxiety because too much anxiety takes us out of that prefrontal cortex where we're learning and we're reasoning and brings us back to reptilian brain. Um, and not enough in sim tends to not maybe allow deep enough learning, right? Like emotion connects, like as most educators know, like emotional learning and emotion tied to a learning point is intense and you don't forget it, right? Sometimes when you think of something stupid that you did in the past and your face flushes and you go through those stages of what you felt at the time, like you don't forget those moments where you did something really wrong. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. It's a delicate balance, right? Because there's, there's that, there's a place for eustress, like that good stress of, okay, like what you're describing is way beyond this, but it's, there's a, there's a good stress of, okay, I need to pass this. This is important to me. I've invested time and money and, and energy and, and people have given up things for me to be here. And, you know, I have a responsibility to learn this and all that, all that's good. Right. But what you're describing is like a million times past that, but there's, a, there's a place for that kind of eustress, right? Cause it drives us to do things well and to complete things and, and mm -hmm. do all that stuff. Um, and I like the reflective piece too, that, that, that you talk a lot about where it brings it in and, and that, that critical thinking, even before the stuff happens, 
mm. right? And, and you often hear about people doing um, visioning or, or I, I call it pre-planning where it's, I, I begin planning out scenarios. So if this happens, what am I going to do? If this happens, what am I going to do? And it can lead you down some really bad rabbit holes, but I think with enough practice, it, it can actually help you in the heat of the moment deal with stuff, right? Um, yeah, it's good. So I want to thank you for taking all this time to be with us. This is fantastic. Um, and uh, I know that Sally is really, she, she's, it's bugging her that she can't be here at, at this time. But so Sally, if you're listening, we miss you. And, and Chad, you, of course, Sally. we miss you too. Um, but uh, Chrissy, I got, I got five quick questions to ask okay. you at the end. I'll okay? do my best. I, I call them my fab five. Oh God. Okay. And, and don't worry. <laughs> Pressure. Just, yeah. Well, a little bit that eustress we just talked about, right? It's all good. <laughs> okay. Stress. Okay. First one, favorite movie. Oh my God. The stress. Um, Willow. 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 Do you remember Willow? I do. I loved Willow. Named my dog Sorsha after the queen's evil daughter. Evil daughter. <laughs> favorite food. <laughs> Favorite food. I'm celiac. So I hate food because I was sick for years. So chocolate, chocolate. Okay. That's a food group. I like that. Yeah. Favorite band. Favorite band. Oh my God. I don't even have, are we allowed as mothers to have favorite bands still? I feel like I'm just like, I'm just bombarded with one direction lately. (laughs) I don't even know if I have a favorite band. I used to love the Dave Matthews band. That's how old I am. I loved them. We've had a previous guest who said the same thing. Dave Matthews band. Yeah. Jen Wicks. Um, By the time this episode comes out, hers will be out. So um, yeah. And good. Uh, favorite tech. Favorite tech. Yeah. Oh God. That's a heated question. Mm. I like Twitter. You know what? I know Malat. (laughs) I like Twitter. I hated Twitter before Malat. Mm -hmm. Um, but Facebook, I hate now. Mm-hmm. I love Twitter. You just got to curate it right. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. You just got to choose what you're watching. And I like it because it's quick. You got to get to the point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sorry. I'll be quiet. No, no, it's all good. I can rant about everything. It's all, hey, <laughs> there's a place for ranting. We used, we used to have a, a section on the episode called Go For It, where it was just, you know, five minutes of whatever you wanted. Just do it. And oh, my God. It, Don't it was give very me that. therapeutic. It was very therapeutic. <laughs> and I agree with you. Twitter, that curated, right? Good. If you don't, yeah. it's doom scrolling. If you just right. get caught in yes. there, right? Okay. Last one. Favorite teacher. Oh, favorite teacher. I'm going to say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm taking too long to answer these. I have so many good teachers. I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say Michael M. first. Remember we talked about him in the beginning. He was pretty pivotal um, because I was early on and it was related to respiratory. I'm going to choose him because he was kind. He was so kind and he walked your journey with you and you could see the empathy in his eyes. And, you know, there's a reason he's the program lead now. Um, So I'm going to call out Mike on that one. Yeah. Nice work. Great guy. Nice work. Yeah, he is great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Christy, for spending all this time with us. Really appreciate it. And um, man, you brought a lot. It's good. I know people will be writing down a lot of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. I had such fun. 
Anytime. Good. Good. Loved it. Thank yeah. you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you again. Hey, everybody, and thanks again for taking the time to listen to today's episode. If you haven't done so already, would you mind subscribing to the episode? And if you've subscribed to the episode, would you mind giving us a rating and a review? Even just a rating would be awesome because then it would help us put some beats back into the algorithm to get this show out in front of everybody so that more people can listen to our awesome guests. And speaking of awesome guests, next week we're going to have Josh Zolan. He is the CEO of Windy City Equipment Services down in Gilbert, Arizona. He's written a book called Blue is the New White. I finished reading the book a little while ago and uh, we're going to have him on the podcast. It's going to be great to talk to him and get his experience not only as being a CEO of a trade company, but also his thoughts and feelings around education. So stay tuned for that one. And uh, until then, have a great week. Talk to you soon. Exchange no time to exchange you and I.